Tegan. And I'm Eric. And this is the Working Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. Have questions about weaving? Send them to hello at workingweaverpod.com and we will have many episodes dedicated to answering those questions with our podcast guests. week, we are super excited to have guests Cecilia Fratelli and Richard Lockwood of Fratelli and Lockwood. They have been involved with textiles for decades and just so happen to be our weaving mentors. They have been producing their lines of handwoven wearables from various studios, but most recently out of the textile studio in Saratoga Springs, New York. Their clothing for men and women are wonderful pieces that showcase their combined talents of textile design, tailoring, and finishing touches that would make any person look dashing. When Chichilia and Richard introduce us to other people, the running joke is, they're us 20 years ago. What they don't realize is how much Eric and I look up to them thinking that could be us in 20 years. I guess they do now. Oh, I guess they do. One thing we strive for is to have a studio like theirs. Their studio is amazing. Everywhere you look, there's either a beautiful handwoven item, a Macomber loom with interesting yardage on it, or yarns in luxurious textures and colors. I secretly love the cutting room in the back, where if I'm lucky, I'll catch Richard working on cutting out garment pieces, meticulously matching stripes, or figuring out the best buttonhole placement. They have been a tremendous help in guiding us through our first years attending craft shows as vendors, how to effectively run a successful business, and learning how to weave like a production weaver by working in the studio when they needed extra hands. Eric and I like to call it power weaving because you can just crank through yardage by simplifying your movements and not being so gentle with the loom. During our conversation, we talked to them about their history in textiles and hand weaving and the differences between the weaving community in the past versus where it is today. We hope you enjoy as we catch up with our friends and mentors, Cecilia Fratelli and Richard Lockwood, the Weaving Dream Team. We started our conversation by talking about how we are both handling our businesses during New York on pause. We, we're, we're just coming to work every day. We just left this morning. We got here at noon. We're like, we're like kind of like on a noon to five schedule Monday through Friday. We spend weekends at home because we have plenty of housework to take care of. And like Saturday was a gorgeous day to be outside. So for us, it doesn't feel that different because we're quite frankly, March and April, we don't see that many customers in the shop. It's kind of quiet on the street, but it's weird knowing that we can't be open. That's the weird part. Like mentally, it's a little weird. Yeah. And the big the big issue now, of course, is where our markets are dried up. We have one wholesale order to ship in May, and we have no other wholesale orders because the shops are closed. We have no shows. Berkshire hasn't canceled on us yet, but we even had a show in October cancel. October. Oh, wow. Next yes. Yeah, so we're yeah. like, what the heck? Why are they, you know, yeah. I don't know what's going on with that. So I'm a little concerned, but, you know, I did apply to PUA, Pandemic 
unemployment, we've never been able to apply for unemployment insurance because we're self-employed. Mm-hmm. Right. But they're making exceptions now. So I don't know how that's going to go. They're supposed to get back. They'll probably call in the middle of our phone call. Yeah. In the middle of our session here, but they're supposed to call and discuss whatever. And then other than that, we're really, we're really enjoying uh, the work here. It's a little bit more relaxed so that I guess you could say it's a little bit more creative because we can, we can spend more time fiddling with yeah. things, uh, design motifs. I'm, yeah. I'm doing this crazy plaid with a hundred colors right now that yeah. uh, from, from all up, my leftover CTM tents to just started doing a plaid format after doing a stripe and a twill. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It, it's going to be slow, but it's fun. Cool. So that's one of the advantages of the pandemic as far as how it affects our business. Good point. Yeah. Also, we get a chance to spend a little more time with our daughter at home, who's also making all kinds of art uh, herself at home. Good. So we kind of threw it into her studio space when we're there. And <laughs> when we leave, she's relieved and happy that uh, we're going one studio and she's in another studio. We are really <laughs> blessed that we have a space to go to. I think we would yeah. be going nuts yeah. if we had to do everything within the confines of one mm-hmm. building. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we get in a car and go someplace and get in the car and go home really feels very normal. So I yeah. think that's like a mental right. thing that's that's helpful. And needless to say, we are exposing ourselves to crowds very, very, in a very limited way with all kinds of precautions. So Just like once uh, a week going to the store or CVS, yeah. that's it. That's really been it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's died. So how about you guys? We haven't been going out that much. And for the first, like... After ACC Atlanta got canceled, we kind of went for a tailspin because we realized all of the craft shows were going to be canceled. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. And just kind of out of the woodwork, the same people who I did the sweaters for a couple years ago asked me if I would make more yardage for them. Mm. And um, this company that we've been, this bag company that we've been talking with, we're moving forward with that wholesale order. And doing right. designing. And then I just started doing projects to try to do stash busters to yep. sell. And then the face yep. masks, yep. which was started as an anxiety project. Like, okay, <laughs> I need to make masks for everybody in my family. So yeah. I know they're safe. So, and then in the meantime, we decided to start this podcast because we wanted to kind of share the weaving community to a wider audience. Yeah. To- yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I a love that. Project. I love that you guys are always thinking like outside the box. Yes, things come in, your orders come in, stuff. You can't always control that, but you also have this really nice energy about reaching out to the community. And I feel kind of guilty because, like, I'm just kind of crawling inside our own little world, and I know that's not what I should be doing. But I also mm-hmm. feel like I there's no goods right now. You have to do what works for you. And I feel like mm-hmm. right now I've been kind of like you know, all the years that we've been going full steam ahead, full steam ahead. What's the next show? Like always having a show in the back of my mind or the the stress of that. And right now it feels like I'm just like, I'm sleeping really well. I'm not anxious about anything. Yeah. There's not a lot of money. There's like no money coming in, but I'm not going to worry about it. Like, I just feel like this is kind of a nice place to be that you know, I, I just have to like do what I feel like doing. I'm really not putting any pressure on myself. So thank you for reaching out and thank you for like keeping our community alive. Uh, Cause I, I don't have the, I don't have that 
energy right now. So I'm really glad that you guys are doing that. It's really yeah. important. Cool. So I just want to say, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> we thank you. Have, we did have uh, three nice responses from customers that we finally shipped yeah. uh, uh, garment pieces from, yeah. to from February right. from so, the Baltimore show. And we got uh, glowing responses from them on all those things. So Beautiful. that makes it easier to uh, to sort of adjust to these circumstances when you're getting good reports from yeah, your customers. Yeah, and kind of, you know, that, that's done now. So yeah, we can kind right. of be on our own. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we got real lucky in that we moved about two weeks before the stay-at-home order hit. So we've got our studio all set up. Well, you know, enough. Yeah. (laughs) And um, back there still. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we're unloading as we go. That's fine. That's fine. Looks paint. Looks freshly painted. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Shelves. Looks beautiful. Very good. Shelves up. Nice. So this is a question I've always wanted to ask, which is how did you decide that you needed to have a studio separate from your living space? Like what kind of drove that decision? <laughs> Astoria. Astoria. Yeah. Yeah. Living at, I'll let you Julia talk too, but living in New York, first in Manhattan, in the tiniest of spaces where, yeah. And, and then moving to Astoria, Queens, where we did acquire equipment and supplies and so forth. And basically, uh, those things controlled our life. Uh, if we were lucky to find a place to sleep, that was good. In the kitchen, we, there were no loom supplies, so we could cook something in our little kitchen. We had a kitchen. We had a, we had a living room. We had a couch in our living room. We had a, a table. And when we had to... Um, get rid of the couch because we didn't have room because we acquired another loom with a, a bench. Huge a huge Leclerc. Like a 12 a six, harness Leclerc. It was like 64 inch. Uh, we had to get rid of the couch. We actually remember this very clearly. We were watching the news on a loom bench. You know, loom benches right. are fine for weaving, but they're not that comfortable. So it's like, you know what? I think it's time to move, right? <laughs> so then eventually it took us, it, it took, took us a while. A while. But, right. you know, we yeah. kept the business yeah. going to like the mid 80s when we found this house and then we we've since then since that apartment we have always had a separate studio first of all i don't like living with lint and i I mean i like leaving i'm not i'm a creative person in that i can't if i have to spend half the time getting everything set up to do something i i quit before i even start if i have something halfway done like i really believe in having a loom with something on it at all times just because it's so much easier to go sit at a loom than st- having to start up from something, s- something from scratch. So that's kind of been our philosophy. Even in yeah. uh, in the farmhouse we found up in the Adirondacks, we had a separate weaving area that we could right. close the door, and then Actually, we ended, a separate and then we ended up building yeah. a building because it didn't have a garage. So we built a garage and then a, and an off off building off the garage that we could that all our studio stuff. And so then when <clears> we were raising our kids, our kids had what used to be our studio became a playroom. And so everything was in another building. So ever since then, <clears throat> excuse me, it's been very important for our mental state because, you, as you know, when you own a business, you can spend way too much time at a business. But if you have a door you can close, you can kind of, you know, carve out right. other parts of your life, which it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. I found out that I'm, I'm much more productive and creative if I take a break from studio, both the physical studio and the work <laughs> in the studio and then come back to it from a different location. So for me, the way I work, it just works better that way. And I get newly energized when I walk in the door and I really feel like 
doing the work that I'm here to do. So, but I know lots of people don't don't need that. So, I mean, that's right. just definitely a personal thing. We've just learned from experience that. I'm, I'm quickly following in that same suit. We now have all the weaving stuff down in the basement, which yep. mm-hmm. is great. All of my sewing and ironing is down there finally. And you can leave a mess, right? It's just nice to yep. leave a mess. I can yeah. just leave a mess, come back to it the next day if I want <laughs> yeah. to, leave it yeah. for a week if I have to. Exactly. Yeah. No, true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, there is one loom upstairs. That's okay. You're allowed. You're allowed. We, yeah. we actually have one loom in our house basement that we just don't use anymore, but it's a nice little sample loom. Someday we'll bring it here, but it's it's com- all computerized and it doesn't like, you know, getting dusty. Mm-hmm. It's probably kind of valuable right now. Yeah, it's oh. a Swiss loom and it's covered with uh, a big tarp. It's a Swiss. Uh, I used to use it all the time. It's a 24 harness or something. Uh, it's crazy. It's 32. only for samples. It's really, you'll have to come yeah. over sometime. We'll show you. Yeah. <laughs> again it's a little it's a little sample room. it's like a little it's really neat oh that and sounds like fun got it bought it when we were flush with money back in the 90s we had so much money we didn't know what to do with it so like yeah hey, we're gonna buy a little computer room and we did use it for samples and oh yeah you know uh, yeah. very complicated things right. but it won't take longer than a, like a four yard work baby mm-hmm. it's it's, oh. it, you know, it's very it's definitely a sample room but it's cute i'd love to get that operational again because that would be fun to play with I did my most complex design work on that loom, actually, yeah. and uh, uh, I don't do anything that uh, that interesting or complicated right now. But it'd be nice to get back to it. Yeah. So said that it's in the basement. Yeah. So it's the reason it's <laughs> going back to the reason it's in the basement is because it's you know we don't want to put it in this kind of lint infested environment. Mm. Yeah. Cleaner at home. How do you come up with your designs now? Are they mostly older designs that you work on or change, modify, or do you come up with all new stuff? No, we never come up with all new stuff, never. Sometimes there's an inspiration from something like a major trip like to Scotland where we come back and we get very energized about about experimenting with different kinds of uh, tartans and plaids and and, and, and rediscovering wool, which uh, for a while we kind of put on the back burner things like that. But, you know, like most artists, art and nature really inform uh, what we come up with because, you know, you try to keep your eyes open to whatever might stimulate you. And uh, who knows how that affects what ends up on the loom. And I kind of like the idea of starting from a fabrication. Like I kind of want to... um, I'm just I like exploring with new new textures and yarn. So bamboo, I really love working with. Of course, chenille's always been there, but wool lately, wool's been really nice. So I try to come up with weaves that will um, accentuate the positive nature of the fiber. So you know, I'm not always going for color and pattern. Sometimes it starts with the texture, and then well, what? Like right now, I I just finished off this moon that's been in our bathroom for probably five years. <laughs> this wart was just been sitting on there and we need to sell a loom. So oh, P.S. we're selling a loom. <laughs> a 16 harness, Maycomber, 40 inches wide. We're going to, we decided, we didn't, which one, we have two of them and we're like, which one are we going to keep? So I did, I wove in our bath, you know, we have this big ADA bathroom. So it was big. So I just, instead of moving the loom out into this crowded space, I wove in the bathroom for two I days. I hooked up some special lighting for her to be able to weave in and there. It's this, it's this beautiful <laughs> bird's eye pattern. I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got to do, because we did a whole line of jackets. In fact, it's Smithsonian like five years ago when we did a whole line of bird's eye jackets and I just never finished the fabric. So I got that off the loom, but 
I'm thinking it's a wool and cotton blend. So I really want to do baby blankets with that weave. But I'm mm. thinking you can't you can't sell a wool baby blanket. No. I mean, maybe maybe not in this country. Maybe in Scotland you could. But in this country, people are like, oh, you can't wash it. You know, I can just hear the comments now. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out, okay, what textures, can, what yarns do I have in stock? Like cottons and something that it has to be cotton for the overlay. And then the bird, the eye of the little weave has to be like something that'll shrink a little bit to give it some texture. So I'm kind of playing with those, that idea. So that's, that's what I'm kind of going with when I say the fiber kind of instructs what it is I want to make. It would almost be cool if you used elastic, like an elastic yarn in the eye of the bird. That's nice. That's a nice idea. I do have some yeah. elastic yarn. Yeah. That Sometimes be- too, uh, in terms of coming up with ideas, uh, I'll be working on something and Trillia will be poking her nose into my business <laughs> and she'll make some comment that I take offense at. And then an hour later, I'm trying it out. <laughs> and I find out that she's got these creative ideas and I'm more technically oriented. So many times I can steal ideas from her. And I don't even know. That, uh, right. Know and I won't even talk to her about it. I'll just kind of play around. And she would never take the time to do the kind of experimenting that I do, which takes incredible amounts of time. And she thinks it's a waste until she sees the work. And just, oh, that's really nice. So, uh, so you know, it 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 uh, it can happen that way too. But let's answer that question, which is we don't really come up with brand new things every time. Some things, yes, are brand new, yes. but then a lot of times it's basically coming up with new colorways of older weaves. You know, especially like our scarf line, like the production line, yeah. scarves and ties. We basically recolor it bring in some new colors, but then we also try to bring in one or two new, totally new patterns. Right. Season. Right. Is this, is that because it's a, a business aspect, like the economy of time, it takes so much time to come up with a new design. It's just better to work with the colors and. Yeah. yeah. So you just have to, I mean, what do we, we, we do shows right up until the middle of December. And then by middle of February, we have to have a brand new line to show our buyers Right. So that's two months and you got the holidays in there. So it's not a lot of whole, there's not a whole lot of time to just play and come up with new stuff. So generally speaking, we come up with a kind of a quick, quickly put together line for February. And then by June, July, when we start shipping, well, we start shipping fall scarves in July, middle, end of July, I guess, or August, September is more popular. But a lot of our accounts that don't come to the big trade shows anymore, we have to send them swatches so mm-hmm. then we really kind of fine-tune based on pick feedback from baltimore yeah. then we come up with well we're not even pick some just sometimes they're yeah. just swatch booklets we call them you know we put all the different colorways in a booklet like make swatches say um six by eight inches put a br- big brass fastener in the corner and then label everything and you can ship those out like a priority so you can ship like six or seven uh, lines of your scarf collection with in swatches and then the buyers just love going through that and they can pick and i think up. that i think that this evolved in this way because right from the beginning when we left our regular jobs in manhattan we had to make a living and so we ended up being sort of production oriented both of us so the when you're doing production weaving it's a little bit different when you have a uh, a tenured academic job and you're doing things on the side for yourself you know, for art's sake or for ways that don't uh, involve having to make a living uh, directly from your work. So I think that's had an effect on uh, on, what? on on the decisions we make and the way we work, you know. Oh, 
Yeah. I mean, we, we've always have to work pretty quickly as far as like designing new stuff. We don't, mm, we don't right. putter. Right now we are puttering and it feels great, but we don't usually have time to putter. I know Tegan and I recently were like, oh man, this is what it's like to not work you know, 20 <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> we could get used to this again. Right. But um, so when you're, um, how do you keep, do you just sort of know all of your patterns and designs and stuff in your head? Or do you have like no. a way that you keep track no. of them? No. And I have yeah. to tell you, this is something I meant to do before you called and I'll show you. Cause I think this would be kind of interesting for your younger weavers, you know, mm-hmm. starting out. Um, I, and I will share this. I will share blank forms of this. This goes back to, um, oh. this goes back to my days in the garment center. So everything there's this is a layout. It's a warp pattern, a fill pattern, and then all your colorways can go here. So you it's warp one would be, you know, you have like whatever, A through H warp colors. Colorway number two is here, colorway number three is here, and then your fill color, same thing. And then you work out your warp format here, your fill format here. This is, you know, not really well, this is a better one. This is the linen stripe. So there's my there's my warp form. I, I mean, I can share this with you, but if yeah. you're, if anybody wants um, a blank, you know, I can give, send a blank thing, like email you as an attachment. Okay. That would be awesome. A really, and then I put them in these little cold, these little, you know, plastic mm-hmm. sleeves, right. And keep them in a folder so that when I go to do it again, I have the, I, this is dated 2019. So I don't have my 2020s yet. Um, but I try to, every time I update it, when I bring in new colorways or whatever, I'll make a new sheet for that. But yeah, these are invaluable because I am really like, I don't sometimes don't want to take the time to write anything down and then I really regret it. So I've learned over the years, I have to write everything down. And the important thing is to follow up at the, after you've done that warp and you kind of work out what your picks are and everything else, go back to that layout and fill all that in. Because once that warp is gone, it's gone, you know, and, and sometimes I don't even have a swatch left at the end of the warp. I've sold all the scarves. I have nothing, but I want to redo it. Like, well, I got to start from scratch. And that's a total pain in the neck. I was going to say, too, that, that, that point about cutting a little triangular swatch or something and attaching it to your, uh, your worksheets is really yeah. handy. The other thing we do is that if we're constructing something out of the fabric we're using, uh, we have sew orders that we, we give to our sewer. And even if you don't have a sewer, you could do this for yourself, that you keep you keep track of uh, how you put together any piece of work uh, in terms of the different fabrics you've used or any of the, the comments you want to make about the construction or anything. And uh, we have files on that, too, both of which go back, both the, um, the weave draft info and, uh, and the sewing orders go back to the eighties. So yeah, we have, we have, um, the sewers have are tons of files like that. Yeah, and we, and we consult with them frequently. Yeah. Like, well, we'll have, in fact, if this is a funny story, but one of our customers, Lois, remember she mm-hmm. bought three jackets, the same style jacket, um, which were all patched, um, like four or five different fabrics and garment the two panels and then the sleeves were something different the collar was something different the back was something different there was a pleat in the back that was something different very complicated um pieced jacket and she had bought three of them and she wanted and she lost them and she said i don't know what happened my um you know i'm ready to take them out for the season i think this was like late last fall sometime i was gonna take them out and i think my you know my cleaning lady threw them out 
can you repeat them? And I'm like, oh my gosh, is she kidding me? But I actually <laughs> found out what year she bought them. She told me they were like for, from 2015 or something. So I had all my so orders from 2015 and I found the little, the paperwork and it had all the swatches, exactly what we did, all her measurements. So I was like, I wrote back. I said, I'm so excited. We can do these for you. And, you know, I didn't have a couple of the fabrics I didn't have anymore, but I was, you know, I could make them close enough, I figured. And then she wrote back and she said, oh, good news. I found them. Uh, My right. lady put them all away for the season. So uh, no problem. So I was kind of relieved. But it sure was nice to see that you had those records. Yeah, it was that. kind of it was kind of a challenge to go back and look for them. So, so something that I know that you and I have talked a lot about is the difference between the weaving profession in the past versus what it is now. So kind of where, where do you see, how was it for you back in the day in the heyday? And then where do you see kind of the future of it going? In general or in, in terms of our business? In terms of, it, it could be in terms of your business, especially because that you know what's best about what your business is doing. You know, we're definitely on the, on the, like, what does Cuomo say? Not that we're on the down, downside <laughs> and, and, intentionally. You know, I mean, we could, you can't, you know, what you guys are doing, you know, how you're saying, put gas on it. That, right, that's right. what you got to do. That's where you're at. Pour you're gas pouring gas. Fire, we're right. done with pouring gas on it. We're kind of, you know, putting the brakes on a little bit just because we're, we're just where tapering. We are in life. We're, we're tapering. tapering. We're, we're tapering. tapering where we are in life and wanting, you know, just wanting other things or whatever. Um, I feel like we, We've done a lot of different things and like explored a lot of different parts of the business. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, we can kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the first, uh, the first, uh, phase was very amateurish getting our sea legs in New York. And luckily we were there because we were able to do street shows. We were able to be, meet, uh, buyers who we never would have met anywhere outside of New York or any other, or some other big city uh-huh. like that. Like, like I was thinking Zona. about Zona yeah. last night yeah. where, they embraced my whole tie line and that it changed everything. And then I was selling to, uh, uh, Barney's, Barney's and Saks, Saks fifth Avenue. And this, and was in the, this was in the eighties and the nineties before a lot of imports were out there. So yeah. American craftsmen, and it wasn't like it was like made in America was not important and handmade was not important, but we were offering something along with fellow craftspeople that, the public wanted and stores, department stores even bought. I mean, it was like not a weird thing to sell to a department store because they were, you know, they were looking for quality products and it wasn't like our, our price points were pretty reasonable back then too. I mean, I'm thinking like, I think we had scarves at $30, wholesale yeah, $30. Yeah. Neckties were probably like at 25, $25. Wow. That yeah. was the price yeah. point. So yeah, you know, uh, looking back, obviously there's been a lot of inflation since then, but it, you know, it, it wasn't like we were, and we were making enough money. We were making enough profit that, you know, it worked out. It wasn't but, like we were giving things away either. Right. No, but then phase two, it, it started getting very busy. And, and especially when Chenille hit, yeah, we, we had to go yeah. into serious production, hire yeah. people, train people up in the North country to be able to crank out all this product. Right. And that was pretty was stressful. Cranking. I mean, it was, it was you know, it was profitable, but we were also paying people a lot of money to be able to keep up with the demands. We had and, like eight to 10 employees. We had yeah. two sewers. These are full-time. When I think back, I'm like, how the heck do we do that? We had like four or five full-time weavers. Like they were weaving Monday through Friday. 
We had two or three sewers. We had a, someone that helping out with the packing and shipping. Um, and then Richard and I. So yeah, it was we like were, a full we were, studio. We, we were, were like full bore all From the like time. From like 93 yeah. to 2000, 2000 I'd say, yeah. something like that. And then when we when we started downsizing it, in, we were in Glens Falls. And then we mm-hmm. came, when did we come here? 2009. Okay. Yeah. So Glens Falls, we, yeah, we had we were starting to downsize. We had like two employees up there. Part, and, then, and everything kind of started going part-time. And yeah. So the '90s were really our our um, our the time that we we cranked it out, and like I said, it was before it was because there weren't any imports. It's hard to imagine that there weren't imports, and that um, American craftspeople were just like any other manufacturer. We were just treated like a manufacturer, especially because we were in New York part of that time too. So we were just like part of this whole movement of handmade stuff, and it was it wasn't celebrated for being handmade. It was just like nice product at a good price. So. It was, it's kind of interesting now, like the celebration of number one, made in America, number two, made by someone's hands. That's all really good stuff. And that, you know, you're like the farmer's market of, you know, good for your soul kind of products. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very different. And I think you can, you know, you can, as you're marketing, I see that as, as a, a selling point. But there is a phase in between the crazy wholesale business we had and this new appreciation of handmade items. And that was that everybody globally caught on to what was happening in the U.S. with handmade things. And they started coming up with design work and quality fabric work or in any craft uh, medium that was just about as good as what we were making also. So the market started getting the flooded. The huge, competition yeah. uh, increased uh, tremendously. I mean, we had we had glass artist friends who were crying about yeah, what was happening in Eastern Europe, right. flooding the American market and killing cheap, well, cheap, killing them. The prices work. were so right. cheap. Yeah. At first, we we won on the fact that our our um, design sense was really superior. I mean, our right. not just I'm not saying ours. I'm saying American young American artists. Yeah. The design sense was really superior, even though we couldn't beat the competition on price. And then the design really upped its itself. Yeah. And so Asian that, design and elsewhere. So then it was like and, it was and, really hard yeah. because that we had all this competition and we were so used to like being the you know center of the universe. And then, of course, the small specialty uh, stores that we used to sell to all the time, uh, those people started getting older. The well, they owners they were also buying and the buying. And they were buying. Stuff, right. Yeah. They were buying other things from uh, that was the buying first cheaper wave. and looking yeah. good. And we were kind of getting crowded out of the market Well, just because the made in America yeah. label wasn't important. back right. then. Right. That wasn't important. So then they were like, OK, well, what else can we sell? Yeah. And now. Now the issue is all those young gallery owners who are young, like we were young, are now older. They're retiring. You know, I feel like a lot of those younger shops are are gone. The real yeah. American craft galleries, you know, that that mm-hmm. that whole genre. I think what you guys and your generation is really smart about is not separating. It's just American craft. It's like good product, whether it's commercial, whether it's handmade, whatever. It's just good product made with you know sustainable materials um there's a story behind the product there's a label there's a hang tag that explains things so i think that all is really really good stuff for future future markets i think that's that's how it's going to work along with all the social media stuff Yeah, many many of the artists of our generation earlier on in the the 90s and early 2000s uh didn't really pay much attention to marketing or to uh 
the web or anything like that. I mean, there wasn't much of one anyway. So, uh, so I think those people who didn't adapt uh, certainly did worse than those who did. And um, of course, you're setting a new standard for how to market your work and and uh, uh, and to embrace the the entirety of of the business model, not just a part of it. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember like some of those fluctuations in the market and how it changed. And I never thought about it until you sort of brought it up, um, is that we are just sort of showing up with good quality product that we think people will like and just sort of um, pretending, for a better word, uh, pretending like we belong there until people recognize us over and over and then start buying from us. Um, so that's an interesting uh, take on sort of how it's changing and how we can look at how we're sort of inserting ourselves into the market. Yeah. You mean, so do you mean in terms of like coming to a show like Baltimore, which has got all skill levels and all, you know, everyone's got to do You mean, so yeah, you, that, that's a very good point. You just have to take a leap of faith. That's what we did. We mm-hmm. just took a leap of faith and we were like the new kids on the block. It was nice because we had some mentors. Remember, like Walter Zip? There were a few people that kind of took us under their yeah. wings, showed us, introduced us to like the weavers that had been there forever. Yeah. And yeah. So, you know, we, but, were, we remember being new kids on the block for yeah. sure. It was it was a little daunting. Right. I mean, I know one of your questions uh, had to do with uh, who we looked up to in our field. And I think that this this is a good place to bring in uh, uh, individuals like Randall Darwell and Muffy Young and Juanita Sheridan, who mm-hmm. were uh, especially especially uh, Randall was not only uh, uh, talented, but gracious mm-hmm. and sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody was like that. There was a little there was a little bit of guardedness oh, yeah. uh, because of the com- competitive nature mm-hmm. of uh, weavers uh, back then. But uh, but in my mind, those three stand out in particular, Randall and Juanita and Muffy, as uh, real uh, uh, landmarks to um, to try to uh, be inspired by. And um, Icons. They were the one yeah. icons, yeah. Definitely. Do you think that since there's been such, like recently, uh, there was the Rand- Randall Darwall Scholarship through the American Craft mm-hmm. Council show, mm-hmm. There's also right. been more articles recently about textiles in general. Do you think that mm-hmm. there's been more? There's been a growing appreciation for textiles and handwovens. How do you how do you see that shifting versus what it was in the past? I mean, I know within the last few years that there have been more people actually knowing what weaving is versus mm-hmm. what it was before. No, I think that's true. I, I'm amazed. I mean, we always have um, a good number of interns from Skidmore and the colleges, like I know that their fiber art and their weaving classes are like the most popular. They're always sold out. Nancy Sharples, you know, from the guild, um, Mm -hmm. her classes are always sold out. Like you can't even, you know, book. I mean, obviously now it's, it's canceled, but um, I don't think every time I see that every time the catalog comes from Saratoga arts Mm -hmm. and the weaving classes are put out, they're always sold out before the catalogs even printed. So I know it's very popular, and I think it's because um, it is kind of accessible. Like, I think it's, you know, obviously people aren't going to go out and buy a 16-harness Maycomber when they're first starting, but there's all these little, like, rigid heddle looms and the little 
easy weaver type things that, you know, once you're an, if you're a knitter and you're kind of familiar with yarn and the qualities of yarn, I think those kinds of little smaller uh, hobby type looms are very accessible and very affordable for people to try. And a lot of art, the knitting stores, even the ones that I know in Saratoga and um, CC's down in um, Gilderland, they sell little looms, you know, that that's just their knitting stores, but then they also have lots of other um, types of um, fiber art equipment. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. I think it's wonderful. It also seems that there are a lot more healthy weaving guilds around yeah. who, uh, you know, are I'm attracting always, more yeah. and more enthusiasts all the time too. So, uh, but um, you may be, you may be more aware both in print and online of uh, reading uh, about the question you're asking. So I don't, I don't know that we're, we used to buy textile view all the time. We used to, when we lived in Manhattan, we we buy all the magazines that had anything to do with fashion and textiles, so and we don't do that much so anymore. Yeah. yeah, so I we're think not the, we're not. I think edge. you probably are a better yeah. uh, a better authority on on that question than we are at this point. All right, I might have to do a little bit of research on that. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I feel like there's not that many really good um, magazines that hit past like intro to weaving stuff there's not like a lot of um in-depth deep articles out there in print magazines about more advanced or technical issues or stuff like that in weaving the the only organization and publication that i can attest that really does dig deep is the complex weavers mm -hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah. They have mm. really great articles that really dig in deep about structures or his history about weaving. They really yeah. dig into that, but they're the only one. Yeah. No, I think right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know HGA has pulled back quite a bit on the depth of their articles. I've noticed. Yeah, I think that's true. Even Hand Weaving Magazine, you know, the I don't I don't subscribe to a lot of them, but the ones I kind of paused was like, oh, yeah, I've seen that before. But that's okay. I mean, I feel mm -hmm. like that's you know, we're bringing people in, we're bringing people into the fold. And then, you know, there's always things you can do on your own to explore and, you know, think of all the workshops and mm -hmm. things you can do to further your education and weaving. So it's all well, and the there. other nice thing is that there's a lot of, um, I think sort of in place of writing articles for magazines, the people who are exploring the deeper aspects of it or, you know, breaking ground in, structure and stuff like that are just writing books on their own yeah, and so it's like how do you uh for us it's been a challenge and how do you find those books when they come yeah. out yeah mm -hmm. yeah well Good tegan point. you've been you've been very successful at acquiring print matter for years and having mm -hmm. probably the best collection around of anybody we know so i i have a little <laughs> bit of a, a book passion <laughs> and it just right. it just so happens that whenever i go someplace i just have to find literature so even with all the stuff that's out there that already seems to be what you've seen before what kind of stuff that's happening now in the weaving culture do you think is pretty exciting like what do you what kind of gives you a little bit of fire to keep coming back to weaving yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah. I, from what just, you know, from all the Instagram sure. um, weavers that I follow, I think the whole, it kind of makes me laugh because I, you know, been there, done that. I'm sorry, I'm old, so I can say that. But um, 
a natural dye process. Like I see people experimenting <laughs> with, you know, and I think it's kind yeah. of fun. Like they'll, they'll make these little notebooks with, you know, marigold, onion skins. And I just like, oh my gosh, that's like my, my teenage, you know, I did that as a high school kid and I did it in summers when I was in college. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. So in that, I did it from like the hippie mentality, right? Yeah. Whereas now it's more like the natural world coming to be part of your sustainable story. Um, so I just, I get a lot of um, pleasure out of that. Cause you know, I remember enjoying that a lot. And I, I think that that's kind of um, a really neat aspect um, that I think can go a lot farther than we ever did it because there are weavers now that are, that's all they do. Like um, Chai Hitchner, there's a few weavers out there that they only use natural dyes, which I find just absolutely amazing. Right. Um, but your, your productivity has to be limited right. because it takes so much yeah. material to make good dyes right. naturally. And, uh, and also you can't get consistency if you're worried about consistency from one piece to the next in the yeah, shades for, for production, for production so for production gonna weavers, work, it isn't going to work and we're, yeah. we always come at things like production most of the time i mean now you know maybe, now it's maybe a little, little more one of a kind right. but yeah. you know in the past it's always been uh, can we do this in production? which is which is not to downplay or de-emphasize or devalue right. uh that that kind of uh exploration because it's personally very rewarding and, uh, and I wish I had done more of it, frankly, myself, uh, the way you did. Well, there's also, you know, you think back that whole, um, that whole history of like the natural dyes and you'd have your sheep in your field and you would, you know, you would shear your sheep and use that. Well, so it was all very much part of this, you know, hippie mentality of, of living off the earth and, and now it's just a little more, um, sophisticated i well, guess was, prior know, to hippie it was just pioneer yeah meant, you pioneer, know, pioneer then, spirit yeah. and, and but that was like survival. this is, this makes sense yeah. for the planet too yeah. it's not just right. like my lifestyle it's about saving the whole planet and i think that's kind of cool yeah and there's a lot more community there's a lot more like you're not out on your own in the middle of nowhere now you have a community that you're working with and maybe you know you're buying my chicken eggs and i'm buying your wool or you know whatever it's it's mm-hmm. a lot more the whole sharing thing, the sharing economy is. But well, I think very even cool. and, and that that point is is uh, important too in comparing the past with the present. There's a much greater sense of sharing and community now among weavers than there was oh, yeah. in when we were That's very very point. busy. That's a, Everybody yeah. was very protective of yes. a source of a yarn, yes. the that way was, yes. to use color. They would they would. Uh, uh, not permit people to take photographs. You couldn't go in your booth. You couldn't no, go in someone else's Another booth. weaver couldn't go no. into a different weaver. There was booth. like an unspoken law. Like right. you just did not. You like this was stood 80s, in the 80s, 90s, you stood early in the 2000s. aisle. You stood in the aisle and you kind right. of, and you, when someone came in your booth, you kind of turned them around so that you were facing the booth and they were facing the other way. I'm telling you, it was serious. Yeah. There was a lot of competition. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, it's yeah. a very healthy, it's a very different I mean, world. you're, it's you're, yeah, you're operating yeah. in a much healthier world than we were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I just walk into people's decades and oh, like, yeah, no, that's I love not this. Different. In fact, right. the ACC even would say do not, and you would, especially like the end of the show, people would come and check things out after the show closed. You know, if you didn't have curtains up and ACC would always say, if there's a, if the artist is not in the booth, you are not allowed to go in that booth because there was a lot of, well, you know, think about all the, um, borrowing of ideas you know maybe that's not so much a big deal but back back in our day people were there like if you were selling if you had a hot item and you were you know selling mm-hmm. something really well people wanted to check out what you had and they would 
there's a few artists Knock that are there today, right. are out there today that have some bad reputations about doing this. Knock, but, when, but when we were asked about things, that issue, we would say, well, we just try to come up with new things as yeah. often as we can. That's our protection yeah. is to come up with right. something different, right. not right. to be stuck in making the same thing over well, and also, over. Also, now we kind of have a look like people know our look and I, very seldom does someone come up and say, did you see that booth down the way? They look a lot like yours. Uh, once in a while, people will go like, oh, um, you know, they'll think like all chenille, we, like, yeah, all yeah, chenille right. like we invented chenille. Right. Like they're like, mm-hmm. oh, did you, they're doing chenille plaids? And they're like, yeah, chenille's out there. I'm sorry. You know, it's all plain weave. So our plaids probably start to look alike. But it's like, you know, from weaver to weaver, I can see the difference. So don't, no worries. We're not copying each other. But, um, you know, that's, that's one of those funny stories about, uh, watching what the other person's doing. So right now we're, you know, we're, we're, I, yeah, I don't need to worry about that stuff anymore. I'm, I'm our booth is open, you know, come see us, come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun, but I do remember, I do remember back in the nineties, it was a little more. Yeah. Even people who are good friends of ours. Now we had very careful relationships back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's interesting and we're on the totally opposite end we're like you can come to our studios these are the drafts i'm using because we're all doing all different things and what i'm doing may not interest what somebody else is doing but they want to know the background Mm. what i think is so cool about the your generation of weavers is that you are doing some phenomenally mathematically challenging stuff like you have a lot of harnesses you use you use AVLs. You're not using a lot of people, a lot of weavers in our generation, not to put anybody down, but it was like plain weave with like lots of clay and, you know, lots of texture, but it was basically plain weave. So it was very easy to knock off and very, you know, it wasn't, you could look at it and figure it out. Whereas you guys and like SIDS and, you know, all you guys are that are using these complicated looms, you'd have to like really take a swatch and pick it out if you wanted to copy it. So that's yeah. good. I mean, that, that way you kind of protect what your line is and um, it's nice. And all the hand painted stuff, you can't replicate any of that stuff. Mm. So, yeah. That's well, and I also think that we have the mentality, at least Tegan and I, that we've got the thing that we're good at. And we're going to do that thing better than anybody else is going to do that particular thing. <laughs> right. So if they want to try, go ahead. Right. Right. Yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just waste well, that's, that's us with like color. People always comment on our use of color because we have a very, very uh, restrained color palette. And um, usually, usually, although if you look at my yeah. loom right now. Yeah, but that's uh, still restrained <laughs> compared to what's out there. It's still restrained. Yeah. But at any rate, you know, people are like, how do you, you know, how do you, it's like, that's not, you can't really teach someone about how to put color together. You either have it or you don't. I I mean, yes, experience and all that will help, but also, you know, being involved with shows and knowing what sells and kind of who, where our market is and what our market's looking for. I think those things all come into play. And that's so specific. You can't, you can't steal that from someone else. You know, that's, that's all homegrown. How do you pick your shows that you go to? History, experience, word of mouth. Uh, I mean, right now, there's like, unless there's something new on the market, what are the new, are there any new shows to do? I don't know. No, also a willingness to revisit a show that didn't work out well once a few years ago. We're always willing to to support it again. Uh, uh, We have a, we have a, a, a real appreciation of, regional uh, promoters who are trying to establish markets. For example, the Providence show, oh, we, right. we feel yeah. strongly about mm-hmm. that. 
this the the uh, uh, the capital region. We try to support people around here who are who are uh, doing shows, and uh, and as Cecilia said, we uh, you know we've been we've been at it for so many years that uh, either finding out on our own or talking to exhibitors when we're at shows and getting clues from them uh, uh, certainly helps. Sometimes it's a matter of uh, we have a relative living in oh, Denver right. yeah. or St. Louis let's or some places. Oh, let's do a St. Louis yeah. show and then we can see our relatives. Yeah. Or let's go to let's go to Cherry Creek and we can visit my yeah. brother. And yeah, his we wife did that a couple of years. So, so, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. you so you combine it so with kinda, family vacation or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the you know the established shows are have been there for thirty plus years. Some of them, <laughs> so it's 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 a matter of getting in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's more the, the the challenge is getting into the shows, not so much of finding out about them. Oh, or of avoiding shows yeah. by a promoter who you know is yes. a bad seed and who yeah. uh, you've tried. Never... We we've tried a few, just yeah. you know, trying to trying to figure out if there was a market there because really the end result is is it a market for you? It's not even about the promoter. It's not even about the show. It's is this a good market for your work? So you do have to kind of um, hold your nose once in a while and try things, but. <laughs> um, yeah, you learn quick. You learn quick. In general, we found that uh, the the larger the venue, uh, in terms of the size of the city or the location or its success over many years, is uh, is helpful compared to uh, you know a small uh, area, a suburban area. Although sometimes that that can be different yeah. too. But you know, like going to Chicago, for example, usually. Uh, you know, or Boston or New York. Yeah, big mm-hmm. cities. Yeah, it's interesting. We uh, Our first show ever was Collar City. Yep, in Troy. Right? So, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, and ever even that first year, we've always done amazing at that show. And for, like, our income versus expenses, it's, like, right up there in the top two or three every year. So that's been an interesting thing, like going to smaller shows and doing really well and then going to a bigger show where there's tons more people, but you don't, like maybe it's not even worth going to that show because you can just spend less and make just as much, you know? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very, that's, it's a balancing act for sure. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, smaller shows that you could do much better at. The Berkshire show is a good example (laughs) in our experience very easy to do and low cost and so forth and usually a very uh, a, a very uh, good outcome yeah. so yeah we we did the uh, mag show in rochester last year and that was an amazing show that's right yeah yeah that's great yeah it's, I, know. I like finding it's so those nice gems to, it's so nice to do shows that take care of you like that too that's mm. such a pleasure you know oh, that was such a special experience because I'm glad you got did well Oh, I, I know that I get very stressed out at shows. I always want to be successful and I'm always nervous the first few hours when like nothing sells. And that show was just so low key and so easy. And that's kind of how I started approaching all the other shows. It's like, I just want this to be low key and easy. (laughs) Like I'm not into the stress. I'm not into the panic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get there early, get set up, hang out. Yep. 
like no reason to rush or stress because you may not make anything at a show. You never know, uh-huh. you know. Mm-hmm. That's so, so true. Did you always uh did you always do craft shows even when you were doing wholesale orders when you were starting or was it just kind of it grew it grew with you? Well, we 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 started doing outdoor street shows. That's right. how we started in New York. When yeah. we lived in New York, we had, you know, full-time jobs. I worked in the garment center, Richard was a teacher. And we would do Saturday, Sunday, we would do shows outside the Museum of Natural History. This is when we started putting a little bit of work together. Um, and uh, that's how it started. And we got our, <laughs> weirdly enough, we got our wholesale accounts from those outdoor retail shows because buyers lived on the Upper West Side. And they're like, oh, we love this in our shop. You know, we were young and naive and I'm sure we priced things pretty well. And um, so that's kind of how that started. And then based on some of those orders, then we would say, started looking at, some of the real wholesale commercial shows like in the t- at the time of the New York Pret, it was uh, ready to wear. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, a lot, even, at the ja- a lot of print. things happened at the Javits. The Javits Center. Oh, yeah. the Plaza Hotel show. And the Plaza Hotel. Accessory right. Circuit. That's, yes. that's what really launched us because mm-hmm. then we saw stores from all over the country and Europe, Japan. They came to these little specialized, um, the Plaza Hotel was a big, this was before Trump owned it. It was a beautiful old hotel, and this company called, um, I think it was ENK Shows. They ran yeah. a pretty high-end, uh, sophisticated clothing show, clothing and accessories. And um, so we were just mixed in with all the commercial players, and you know whatever. But our price points were right; they fit right in, and um, we had some really good, successful years with them. We would do one; we do the May show, and the wholesale client. We get enough business just the whole, just that show for like a year. Like we would, that was, so that would be a kind of our bottom line, like bread and butter stuff was all the wholesale. And then the retail shows we'd fill in for cash um, because obviously you don't get paid, you know, everything was net 30, net 60. Some of the department stores were net 90. So, you know, we needed to fill in right. with, with retail at that point too. Yeah. And the, and the bigger the account, sometimes the longer it took to get paid if yeah. you ever did yeah. get paid. And sometimes and, you didn't get paid. Well, yeah, I mean, most yeah. of the time, we, there were a couple of accounts that, yeah, they were they were bad. The other thing that was happening in those days was that uh, we would we would do shows solo. Like I would travel a lot. Well, that's after uh, the kids were born. After you know. kids were born, and yeah. I would go out to you know San Francisco I think or Denver wholesale shows. Oh yes, right. So okay, that's how yeah. the that's how the wholesale retail. So we always did wholesale retail for almost the whole. I mean, I still, I, right. Quite frankly, I prefer just doing wholesale shows. I think they're I just feel like a business owner when I do a wholesale show. When I do a retail show, I feel like a gypsy. Like people, you know, I, 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 we got this question early on in our career, and I was like, is that really what people think? So someone's just said, so now, so you all travel together, and like, where's your next stop? Like, as if we were a circus, you know, we all put everything in a big truck and then went in these big trains with the elephants and the tigers in another car to the next, you know, Pittsburgh or wherever. I'm like, no, 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 no. I said, you don't understand. We're all separate businesses. We just come together at this shot, this show, but we're not like a traveling circus, you know? So I always keep that in my mind and and it kind of cracks me up. But I mean, I think that's a lot of the public kind of thinks that way. Like we're all... You know, we're all yeah. gypsies. We just yeah. all kind of get together, hang out for a couple of days, get some, you know, take some money from people, and then, and then travel to the next spot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of feel like that too. Like we're still a little crazy and haphazard because we see a lot of the same 
artisans at the same shows right. that we do. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, we're all traveling together and yeah. doing this thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. sometimes true. Yeah. yeah. Whoa, where are you going next? Yeah. What's your next show? See you there. Yeah. See you yeah. there. Yeah. See you yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Take I know. At, um, Baltimore, we were saying like, see you in a couple weeks to most people yeah. as we were leaving. Oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and then yeah. if that was the end, yeah. that was the last. How, how much COVID do you think you know, we were we, exposed we, to there? We yeah. were thinking, boy, we could be we, asymptomatic yeah. carriers, you yeah, know, from Baltimore, those, that far yeah. back. Yeah. That, it's so funny when you look back, it's like, oh my gosh, that's the last show that we've, that we've all done. Probably you yeah. too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. March was canceled. So yeah, yeah, we, we left Baltimore and we came home. I don't even think I took a day off. I just immediately started working wow. for right. Atlanta. Right. Yes. And I got blankets woven. We were getting ready to dye them. And I had towels woven. I needed to hem them. And then maybe two days before we were going to go to the show, Eric was like, you know, I don't feel safe. Yeah. Absolutely. So we just, we were uh, like packing the van up and we decided like, I let's just, we'll eat the money and it's better to be alive and broke yeah. than right. dead and broke. Yeah. You know what I right. mean? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so we pulled out maybe a day before they canceled. Yeah. And we got, we've still got twenty blankets ready to die and about yeah. seventy uh, towels yeah. ready to hem. That's, you know, that's the worst thing. It's well, like make inventory. Want you know? Yeah, it's gonna, I mean, this is not going to last. Forever. I've got all these rolls of cloth that I've woven. I'm People just so excited nuts. about uh, getting it sewn up into garments. I think that our know? customers are going to go nuts. They've been, you know, pent up all this pent up demand. Uh, I really think that we're going to have a banner fall or winter, whatever, whenever it is that we can. Uh, start selling again and meanwhile the other thing we're trying to do is use our daughter claire who's a pretty good photographer she got a great camera when she graduated high school and she's you know gotten really good at it so she's going to be shooting some of our new pieces on our mannequin we have a little makeshift um what do you call that photo box or our porch mm-hmm. with a little mm-hmm. screen and the whole, so she's yeah, going to do nice. a whole mannequin and then yeah. get our so we can update our website finally because you know it's been a while i mean i you know, sporadically put new pieces up there, but it, it's not, it needs some serious attention. And then I want to do like a big, like social media thing. Like our website is now live and up to date and, you know, 20% off or, you know, between now and whatever, because mm-hmm. the summer's quiet for scarves and neckties anyway. So I figured this will be a good way to like launch the new, all the new styles, give everyone a discount, which we've never done. We've never given anyone a discount. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of like a fun thing for us to see what happens. You know, we're not traveling anywhere. We're not going on any trips. We're going to be here. So why not ship stuff? You know, absolutely. Weave a little ship, a little get Mm -hmm. that credit card machine (laughs) oiled up again. Yeah. So it kind of leads me to want to ask, what was your first like big sale? Like your first big moment of like, oh, I'm actually doing this. I'm actually like in the business. It was what I referred to earlier. We're on the street in yeah. front of the Natural History Museum on uh, on uh, Central, 81st, 81st and, Central and Central Park West. And this buyer from Zona, which, which is a, a big, specialty store big, in the village. This is before Soho was Soho. Okay? Yeah. This was way like they were way ahead of the track. They had built a gallery, a beautiful, like almost like a department store gallery of American crafts right. way back when it was just like a district, you know, yeah. a, a warehouse district. And he ordered dozens of ties like, from me like, and they kept reordering for 
he ordered I mean, like 12 dozen ties or, I mean, it was, I know over like a couple hundred pieces. So whatever that is, 15 dozen ties. And we were like, wait, what? Like we were expecting like 15, but no, it was like 15 dozen. Cause he was like, he was, he went through, he, Richard yeah. had this re- really cool lineup, like kind of a striped tie, kind of a yeah, Southwest yeah, yeah. Yeah, flavor striped right. tie with like these little um, eyelash type yarns that were mm-hmm. sticking out mm-hmm. and very creative. We call them Caballero. Caballeros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there weren't eyelashes. They were uh, seeds. Seeds, was, uh, okay. Yeah. Seed yarns, yeah. Like, yeah, so like a little texture, torpedo yeah. seed in there. And he, was, anyway, he was... would point out, like, you had maybe 12 to 14 mm-hmm. ties. Or whatever. He would go, like, he would just point out all those. And then, so we wrote them all down as, like, single ties. And then he's like, no, no, do- a dozen of each. And we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so just added two next to the one. Yeah. So we just had to be like really okay. like cool, like okay, keep it cool. This is like we do this all the time. It's not a big deal. So now we were pretty excited. That was our first our first wholesale order that yeah. really launched us. And then we figured out that uh, the big department stores were allowing uh, designers to come in and present work uh, to consider. Uh, what do they call that? There was a name for those days. Sales. Yeah. Open, right. Like an open to buy yeah, day. Yeah, open to buy day. And, you know, and all everybody yeah, had these. All so designers. We just walk yeah, into yeah, these big yeah. department stores yeah. and meet the meet buyers. The buyer. and, They'd order them right there. Henry they, Bendel. Bendel's yeah. was like that. Bergdorf's. All of them. Saks Fifth Avenue. They all, once a week, they'd have all your young, you know, young designers. Designers, emerging designers, come in. Show us your wares. We'll either buy or we won't. Paul Smith, we did. Oh yeah, Paul big, Smith, big business right? Paul Smith. My favorite. Yeah. So we had yeah. a lot of uh, department stores. We just yeah. kind of, you know, kept. But that Zona was on. like the oh my gosh, yeah. what do we do now? Yeah, that was pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It kept us busy for a while. Yeah. What's like the biggest mistake you ever made, and like how mm-hmm. did you sort of get around it or learn from it or? There's so many. <laughs> what should I talk about? I guess the biggest one that I, that, yeah, probably the one with the chenille worming. When I first did a lot of chenille, yeah. I did this. I thought it was being really tricky and did this um, really cool line that had big floats of chenille in a twill design. Like, that's a no no. But I didn't test market at first and I sent it out and it, they started coming back because they started worming, you know, the, the, the big loops. Mm-hmm. Where the accent yarns were, were big loops. Um, so I got a few. I'm kind of surprised that I didn't get tons more. But when, you know, it was like part of our line, which we wholesaled and sent it to stores. And then when I got the first two or three back, I thought, oh, my gosh, we're just going to get dozens of these scarves back. Because we had shipped a whole line at that point. And it never happened. So I don't know if people had better luck. Maybe just a couple people, you know, had problems with them. I don't know. But, I, you know, it's like the stress of that is not not good. Mm. But that's probably the most dramatic one. Other than that, yeah. other than customers, like you should ne- we never should have taken orders from oh, certain people right. because they're just never right. going to be happy. Oh, and yes. see, that's very stressful when you have a person yeah. that's really unhappy and they want you to take the whole thing back. And it's like, you know, a specially made garment that you spent a lot of hours on and you can't sell it to anyone else because it's been custom made. Mm-hmm. So over the years, we've had a few customers like that. It's an awful when that happens because you kind of want to give up the whole custom part of your business. We've even discussed that recently. Yeah. And what what's even worse with some customers, especially New Yorkers that we used to deal we with all yeah. the time, I would send, I would, I would work very hard and send them all these different samples and so forth, and uh, and then I'd get back, uh, well, could you do something? similar but in these colors here or you know some other variation 
And then I'd finally send them that, and then they'd say, "Well, I'll, I'll, oh, I'll be in touch," yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. or I'd right. make something, right. and uh, they would say, "Well, that wasn't exactly what I ordered," or something like that. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing we've know, learned is that don't take yeah. someone's enthusiasm too seriously. <laughs> like, give them a bill <laughs> before you start, <laughs> or like, you know, make sure they understand. I'll, I'm happy to weave up samples, but I charge, you know, whatever thirty dollars an hour. And this is, you know, this is probably going to be a hundred dollars worth of samples before we get started. Are you okay with that? So we've mm-hmm. learned because people get very enthusiastic and you just assume it's going to be an order and it isn't always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's one thing that, um, we did right early was we just didn't do anything for free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you yeah, want that's... us to sit at a loom, it costs money. There you go. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. smart. Yeah. yeah. And that's only because I was working in an industry where you don't get anything for free. If you're trying to get something printed, you're paying for those samples, you're paying for test runs, mm-hmm. you're paying for this and that. Oh, you're being yeah. nickeled and dimed for everything. Yeah. Um, so we dialed it back from that a little bit, but not mm-hmm. all the way. Oh, that's smart. And you know, that industry experience is really helpful. Like my industry experience in the garment center where right. every, you know, every cent was accounted for, like you're doing a, some kind of yardage and it was, had to come out at, to 749 a yard, you know, you had to, so yeah, I, we dial it back from there too. So I see what you're saying, Eric, that, that those kind of industry experiences are really important um, when you're running your own business. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. so now that you have like this industry experience behind you, how does that help inform how you price your work like to talk about money how do you how do you price your work how do you value the time that you put in kind of there's a formula that we've been using you know you can't it doesn't work like 100 percent of the time but it's a good starting point and that is you know the cost of your labor and materials times three so you have to pay yourself whether you're paying yourself or an employee pretend you have an employee and you know, work that into your account. You can't work for free. So time and time and um, materials, labor and materials times three. So third of that is cost. A third is your overhead, which is your studio, your electrics, your utilities, things that don't, you know, things that you pay a monthly fee for. And then a third is profit. So if you can do that, great. That's kind of the retail thing. Wholesale is really kind of I kind of do labor and material and then a little more than double, like two and a half times um, for wholesale pricing. So actually I should back that up. The old days it was labor materials times three for wholesale. And then the retail was doubling that. That's how we did it. So now I'm, you know, just to keep things because prices keep going up, I try to do it like two and a half times instead of three times. And our, our overhead is pretty consistent. Like we don't have a lot of changing overhead and we don't have a lot of employees. We just have two part-time employees. So there's not a lot of like FICA insurance and all that kind of stuff. So our overhead is much less than it used to be in the old days when we had a, a studio full of employees. Mm-hmm. But the other thing too is that we, we've always felt that we wanted our work to be uh, on somebody else and not hanging in our studio and so on. Our pricing maybe has been a little bit uh, uh, less expensive than some people think it should be, uh, so that we could get work out the door. Uh, well, we also we we start know. our sample like our clothing samples start up pretty high, and then you know if something doesn't sell, obviously we're going to mark it down or 
if we right. do it again. Exactly. Or are there certain fabric, if we have fabric, a lot of a certain fabric, like we wove, you know, 20 yards of something and it's not sitting, it's not selling through, then we'll mark those pieces down and just kind of encourage, because even 50 bucks reduction seems to help, you know, price points sometimes. Yeah. Or sometimes things are just priced too high and, you know, you don't know why. I, the best piece of advice I ever got was from someone that said, when you're putting a new product out there, don't price it so high that no one buys it because you can always raise your price. So price it like as reasonably as you possibly can. And if it takes off, then, you know, you know, you've got a product that's selling. Whereas if you price something too high and no one buys it, you don't know why. You can't just say, well, why didn't you buy that? Is it too expensive? You know what I mean? Unless you know the person, the customer. Um, so I thought that was always good advice. So we try to start low. And then if something really takes off, we inch it up. How do you decide how much of something to weave? Like oh. for, like, how do you decide, like, I'm going to weave this much for these scars and this much to make so many shirts, et cetera? Yeah, arthritis uh, certainly <laughs> plays a big role with me. I can't get down comfortably below 18 pegs uh, uh, on my on my warping yeah, we have board, a board. We don't have a much. mill. So I used to go down stretch. to like 24 or something like that. I, I don't even try that anymore. And carpal tunnel, arthritis, you know, numbness uh, all over. These these things really uh, come into play now for me. Yeah. So generally now it's about 18 yards that I'm doing. Uh, and if I have to repeat, if I have to go back as I have recently and reweave something because I ran out of that fabric, it took off, then I'll make do. another work. But you know, we tie on. We yeah. never start from scratch. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. tying on problem. Well, we hours. have to clean the back beam once yeah. in a while, you know. And, but uh, we very rarely start from scratch. Yeah. So yeah. The, the yard the, the scarf yardage, I think the most scarves we do at once is eight scars, which is like eighteen yards maybe. Yeah, it's probably about eighteen yards also. So but most of the time we do four to six pieces because you know we the warps are different colors so um yeah but we also don't have any special equipment on the backs of our looms either we just have yeah no sections or anything yeah yeah. yeah. at this point you know you don't want to do you don't on these looms you start if especially if it's a thick um thick kind of weave or wool or something you don't want to build up that front beam too much or you start your we've had the problem (laughs) of having the heddles hook into that front right and destroy the fabric creating holes i mean i had some like a bamboo scarf with holes in it i was like what it was really awful so i'm careful not to go beyond 18 yards interesting do you think um is that partly to do with the looms that you have would you do longer warps if you could yeah i'd love to do we sold our sectional loom years ago but never really got it we had talked about doing 100-yard warps a yeah. long time ago, yeah. and we never got to it. When we and, were in Glens you know, Falls. It would have been yeah, smart that, to do that. We, in Glens Falls, we had lots of I know of you guys do much yeah. longer warps, yeah. and that's great that you yeah. do. If we were starting sure. out again, I would oh, definitely yeah. get It's yeah. so much less taxing to just put on a long yeah. warp and go with it. Because, you know, like a solid black warp, what can't you do on a solid black warp? I think right now our minimum product warp is about 50 yards. Wow. Yeah, yeah so, so I'll do 50 yards at a time and wonderful yeah yeah because that's that's so you're saving so much labor in setting up the loom and yeah all the in and all that stuff so that's very smart and our final question is what was the best piece of advice that you've ever got (laughs) i guess um i think it would it would have to be just 
pursue what you love doing, uh, whatever it is. Of, was that a piece I, of advice or is that something you would tell somebody? No, I think, I think I've heard that, uh, in my life, uh, you know, don't settle for making a living. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> I think I remember someone in, I specifically know who it was. I can't remember her name, but she was a costume design. Um, she was in the theater department at Skidmore and she worked in the costume design. So I don't know if she was like a, like a, you know, a sewer or she was just helping out. She was an adult, you know, she, she wasn't a student and she told me, I was like coming up. Oh yeah. I made that mask. That's what it was. I, I was a, we, mm -hmm. I was a weaving student. So I did all this woven stuff and I made this really crazy mummer's mask with the big you know things coming out which i still have somewhere and um in the basement and here. i was using i was yeah. working in the costume shop to kind of put it together and she was kind of helping me devise this mask because it was this massive heavy thing with these all hand woven um tubes or whatever they call right. those things coming out and then i had to make a mask and then it had to sit like in a wire you know cage on my head without falling you know tipping over to one side so she was kind of helping me balance and stuff and i remember her saying to me you have a really interesting quality in that you're you're not afraid to do stuff you like to make things like you don't know how it's going to work out so you work it out technically and i always kind of kept that like don't there's no reason to be afraid of this like if it's going to work, it's going to work. If it's not, it's not. But there's no reason not to do it because of fear. So I've always approached work that, that way because, after all, it's cloth. You can't really break it. Like there's, it, we're not working on like gemstones worth millions of dollars. Right. You know, it's like, it's just yarn. So go for it. If the worst that happens, you just tear it off your loom exactly. and start all over again. Right. So Love that it. was that's the advice that I um, have thought of. Very I think often. before we had more trouble answering your question about the biggest mistakes we made, because with weaving, as you know, <laughs> you can rip out anything that you don't like. Oh, yeah. You know? mm -hmm. or, or just Start or over. just cut it off or cut it off. And oh, that's that's my favorite. When I cut a dog <laughs> off the loom, it's like, all right, it's clean gone. slate. It's out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. You don't yeah. ever have to look at it again. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the hardest decision you have to make in uh, month is do i keep going on this when i feel like it's a lost cause or do i just cut it <laughs> off and start over yeah. right right well you know yeah, the, and, we do a lot of stuff with scraps so sometimes i'll just weave something off and say oh this will make great you know I'll, I'll put something like if the warp is a dog i'll just put like a bright hot pink fill in there and go oh this is going to be great for all our scrap stuff because you know we always we don't do like bright colors very often and sometimes mm -hmm. with those piece things that we do i need something really bright so it's always a good way to yeah. well thank you guys so much for doing this with us this was I so bet. much fun i don't know if you got any useful information uh, at all i just love talking to you so it's been really fun it's been pleasant oh this is perfect yeah. i we got a lot of good information yeah, look, and I'm inspiration time we can actually be in the I same know. place at the same yeah. time yeah. I Go have dinner yeah. with Pizza or something. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to give you guys both a big giant hug. Yes. Right. Same here. We really miss you. Because we, we saw each other quite often, you know? Wow, that was a lot of fun. I know, right? How about that secret sample loom in their basement? We'll have to go check it out sometime. 
Just wanted to say one last quick thank you to Richard and Cecilia for coming on our podcast today. And I wanted to let all the listeners know that you can see their project tracking sheet in the show notes at workingweaverpod.com. We also added links to all of the weavers and all of the shows that we mentioned. So if you're curious to check any of that information out, you can find that at workingweaverpod.com in this episode's show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Working Weaver podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes each Friday. If you enjoy what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. Don't forget to send your weaving questions to hello at workingweaverpod.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Working Weaver Society, and you can get full show notes at workingweaverpod.com. <laughs>